This is, this is Collected Thoughts with Keyshawn Harper. The sky may fall, the earth could shake, and the seas could turn to stone. The sun may scorch me, still I'll be brave, but I'm scared to be alone. What I just read are some lyrics to a song called Scared to Be Alone by the artist Tim B. Toad. As you can probably tell by the title, the song is about the fear of being alone. I first heard the song years ago, and I immediately gravitated to that notion. Like, to me, the scariest part in horror films is when the character is in isolation. When the safety of numbers dwindle. When you're so far away from civilization that no one could hear you scream. That's when I feel like you're most vulnerable. And the same goes for real life, I guess. We can all go on with this existential fear of never being truly connected with people. It's like you live your whole life surrounded by billions of strangers and this isn't considered some irrational phobia it's actually kind of weird if you don't have this fear we always give the side eyes to like the loners who don't fit in that's why the terms lone wolf and black sheep are negative in the wild those animals typically don't survive very long the same rules apply in the jungle of society for me nothing embodied this fear more than stepping foot on a playground Imagine getting out of the car and hearing the sounds of laughter dancing around your ears. You walk closer and closer to the slides, the monkey bars, the swings galore. And on those swings, on those monkey bars, those slides, are other kids. And these kids are different than the ones back home. These kids are your age and they don't know you. They're having fun chasing each other, pushing each other around on the swings. You see that they're having a blast and you want in. But how? Thus, my friends, enters that big desire to fit in. And yes, I am fully aware of how dramatic that sounds. But that's what was going through my head. I remember my grandmother getting frustrated because I had a hard time making friends at the park. She wasn't frustrated at me because I was having a hard time. She was more so wondering why. You see, I overanalyzed the crap out of everything. And the art of childhood friendships, it wasn't excluded from that. Looking back, I realized I've always psyched myself out when it came to making friends. I always made up so many reasons why nobody wanted to play with me, to a point where it was just easier to sit out rather than trying to figure out how to infiltrate this group, how to make a group of people to like me. And naturally, that fear carries on in life. No matter how old you become, you still never want to be that kid who plays by themselves. Playing by yourself on the playground turned into not having friends in school which turns into not having friends to do things with which turns into not finding a girlfriend or boyfriend which ultimately blossoms into a crippling dilemma of dying alone because no one wants to marry you i'm sorry for getting dark there is a point to this anyways no one wants to go through that path so one may ask themselves what is the easiest way to make friends if you want to choose a path of least resistance You simply do what they do. When in Rome, right? Listen, people are typically comforted by traits that remind themselves of themselves. It breeds a sense of familiarity. If I don't know you, I can't trust you. If I can't trust you, I'll leave you out my pack. This isn't bad. It's it's survival. But it also has a dark side. Today, we're going to talk about when does fitting in become dangerous? When does the innocence of looking out for your own morph into the maliciousness of hunting them? All right, let's start this with a quick anthropology lesson. 
no matter who you are, you belong to a group. So we are all clear, when I say group, I mean a number of people who are classified in the same category based on certain characteristics. This can be race, class, you're a Dodgers fan, you went to the same high school, anything, all these things count as being in a group. I want you to notice how your involvement in a group does not correlate with your level of commitment to it. You may not like the group, heck, you may not even identify yourself as part of that group, but nonetheless, if society says otherwise, other people will see you as part of that group. Most of the times, however, people rock heavily with their group, even if they technically do very little to contribute towards it. I mean, look at sports fans. They never take a dribble in the game, throw a pass in the game, yet everything is we. <laughs> you would think they're on the field the way they talk about them. Anyways, this is all to say that people get really into their groups. And it makes sense because groups are communities. Groups are made of people who love the same things, or maybe they've had similar life experiences. Experiences that create some sort of bond that they may not get from others. And because of that bond, the community means a hell of a lot more. It's not enough to just be in a group. You have to be in good standing. You have to be a valuable member of that group in order for you to feel like you truly belong. This may mean bending and shaping your habits, your ideas, your individuality for the sake of being a valuable member of that group. And if this doesn't happen consciously, simply being around people of the same mindset molds our brains. I mean, just think about the friends you hang out with the most. This is normal. Having a community is healthy. It keeps us sane. And for some of us, it gives us meaning. But how do these groups we belong to influence our decision making? Before we dive any deeper, you need to understand where you fit into it all. And that can easily be determined by answering this question correctly. Let's say Tim has 13 apples and he gave six of them to Sally. How many apples does Tim have left? I'm going to give you a second. You got it? <laughs> okay, I'm joking. The obvious answer is eight. <laughs> and when people are asked this question, I mean, nine times out of ten, they get it right. It's the people who get it wrong who are the interesting ones. See, your ability to add and subtract has an intrinsic connection to how susceptible you are to groupthink. Like right now, how many of you second-guessed your answer and believe what I said was correct? Ladies and gentlemen, the correct answer is actually seven. But I'm willing to bet that some people changed their answer to eight because I said it was right and because I mentioned how most people get it right. This very premise was the idea behind the psychological project known as the Solomon Ash Conformity Experiment. In the early 1950s, psychologist Solomon Ash wanted to see the effect peer pressure had on decision making. The experiment took place in a classroom of about 50 students. Only one of those students were real, the rest were actors. In the class, the professor asked a painfully obvious question. See, he drew a line on the board, and the students were given three options as to what line was closest to the length of the original. To get rid of the chances of regular error, they made one line super long and the other line super short. The professor would then go around the room and ask every student which one was the right answer. The purpose of the experiment was to see if the student would conform and give in to the incorrect answer, or would they stand their ground and give the answer they know is true. 
After a series of tests, they found that about a third of the time, people would conform and give the wrong answer when put in the situation. And in control groups where there was no pressure from actors to give the wrong response, only 1% of participants gave the incorrect answer. So what does this all mean? We can infer that conformity can be influenced by two things. One, a need to fit in. And two, the belief that other people are smarter or they know something that we don't know. Clinical studies are one thing, but does this really happen? I mean, at least I like to believe that my mental fortitude is stronger than some sheep people, right? The crazy thing is, this does happen in real life, and it just doesn't affect small circles of people. It can move nations. September 11th, 2001 was a day that will forever be known as one of the darkest days in U.S. history. Two planes were hijacked and driven into the Twin Towers. A third plane was meant to fly into possibly the White House. However, those on the flight fought the terrorists, and the plane crashed into a coal mine in Pennsylvania instead. Almost 3,000 people lost their lives that day, and America was in utter disbelief. As footage played over and over again of the second plane hitting the tower, our anger was rekindled with each repeat. As the anger swelled, the call of retaliation grew louder and louder. A terrorist organization by the name of Al-Qaeda, which translates to the base in Arabic, claimed to have been behind the attack. This is when things went kind of out of whack. For younger audiences, you first have to understand that this was before Twitter. This was before Facebook. The internet was like a toddler back then. Cultures weren't as easily connected. You couldn't just look at Twitter to see what the point of view was of someone else actually living there. No, if you wanted the truth, it wasn't handed to you. You had to dig, and I mean dig. But in this case, the country was attacked in a way we never saw coming. When emotions are so high and tears are streaming down the proverbial face of America, people did not have time to think. We just wanted justice. We wanted to fight back, and we were like a riled up teenager. Whoever got in our faces first was going to feel the wrath of America. Young men were flocking to recruit centers trying to find a way to serve their country. Everyone was on board, but the problem was, Al-Qaeda was a bit of a scattered entity. Sure, it was growing, and the group was active, but they were more so of a clandestine operation, and had so many scattered parts. In other words, it was kind of like fighting a ghost, rather than a big burly Russian or the Germans of yesteryear. But this wasn't something anyone wanted to hear. They wanted an enemy, they wanted someone they could fight, they wanted someone they could see. And if someone were to give the U.S. an obvious enemy that they could direct their anger towards, it would not only give the country a sense of purpose, but also give the people a sense of control. Thus, enter the war in Iraq. I take the threat very seriously. I take the fact that he develops weapons of mass destruction very seriously. We can't let the world's worst leaders blackmail, threaten, hold freedom-loving nations hostage with the world's worst weapons. Looking back on it now, many people believe that there were three major judgment errors that got us into the war. First was the public accusation made by President George W. Bush that the country of Iraq, ruled by Saddam Hussein at the time, was hiding weapons of mass destruction. 
These weapons were said to hold catastrophic power that could change the landscape of the world as we know it. This led to the second error, that Iraq, with these weapons of mass destruction, held a very real and imminent threat to the U.S., which snowballed into the final and perhaps most impactful I told, that Iraq and its government held close ties to Al-Qaeda. Essentially, we were told that Saddam Hussein and his weapons of mass destruction had teamed up with Al-Qaeda, and their goal was to destroy America and our way of life. This lie was told on live television, over the radio waves, and written in our newspapers. The tired, angry, and now unified people of America now had a target to aim their hatred towards. In the political world, there were two camps, for and against the war. Those against the war argued that the connections between Al-Qaeda and Iraq made by the president were faulty and held no bearing. We essentially were going to fight the wrong people. Not to mention, they pointed out the fact that the 2003 invasion of Iraq was considered illegal since the actions were not approved by the United Nations. But honestly, those arguments never stood a chance. Americans were afraid, they were angry, and they were looking to their leader for answers. During this time, patriotism was at an all-time high, and even the thought of not supporting the war, well, that was considered cowardice. This national group behavior is known as the rally around the flag reaction, which happens during times of crisis. I mean, think about it. Everyday Americans aren't up to par with international affairs and the ethics of war and the rules of his declaration. We elect leaders to handle all that. And when the time comes, we stand together and support the decisions made by that elected official. Those who were for the war was considered the end group and all others were considered outsiders or traitors. This is what fuels national groupthink. After the invasion of Iraq in 2003, we found out several things. One was that there were never any weapons of mass destruction. Two, although Saddam Hussein was a very evil man, he had no plans to attack the US. And three, Iraq had no ties to Al-Qaeda. The Bush administration at every chance began to preach this message to the already afraid and already confused people of America. In their eyes, the people needed someone to be mad at, the people needed a target. They just simply provided it. And I know we went super macro scale on this, but it's for a good reason. This stuff can snowball into huge movements. How do you think hate groups like the KKK or Nazis are created? One person, one idea. But why does this happen? Never mind the political affiliations, but in general, how are the normal, educated, and most times good-intentioned thought processes of everyday people somehow overridden when you put them into a group? If you look at research, there are plenty of different factors that go into this. But to make it simple, you can put it into three words. Numbers, difficulty, and privacy. Let's start with the easiest one. People are way more likely to conform when they're heavily outnumbered. This isn't too hard of a concept to put your head around. There is safety in numbers. If you were stranded all alone on some island and you found some local tribe living off the land, you will most likely adopt their traits in order to survive, no matter how weird or how different they would be. The second major factor relies on how difficult a decision is. The fact of the matter is that many of us believe that other people are smarter than we are. 
This only intensifies when we are faced with difficult choices. If a majority of people are saying X is the right thing to do, and it's far easier to agree with that group of people rather than researching and justifying it yourself, chances are we're going to say X is correct too. Sometimes we adopt group policies as our own because we can't make up our own minds. You can tell this by the examples we talked about. If people were likely to conform about a simple question, like which line matches which, then it's easy to understand how we can fall into groupthink when presented with much more difficult decisions like whether or not we should declare war. And that leaves us with the last one, the one I think affects us most today, privacy. When we think back on the ashes conformity experiment, what would be one thing that we could change that would drastically change the results? Let's say that this experiment is done today, but instead of everyone answering, only a few people will get into the front of the class and explain why their answer is best. Their answers will still be wrong, and we could spice it up by having a few people say, anyone who thinks otherwise is completely dumb. We can have like the whole classroom just going at it, talking about how simple this answer is, all arguing for the wrong answer. We can do all that, but this time, we make the participant give their answer privately like over let's say an anonymous survey or if you had a school that had the clickers they'll do that if we made that happen what would change i think it's safe to say that they would answer what they believe to be true i believe the amount of people to conform to the wrong answer would decrease significantly and notice we didn't change how many people thought the wrong thing we didn't mess with the difficulty of the question we merely went from answering the question out loud to answering it in private. This makes the biggest of differences. Publicly standing against something is so risky. You open yourself up to criticism, ridicule, isolation. When we have to make public decisions, we're not only just deciding how we feel about the topic, but we're deciding if we're willing to expose ourselves for this topic. Listen, this isn't some anarchist rant. I'm not trying to talk about dismantling organized government or political parties. What this is, is the acknowledgement of the dominating force that is a group. Just as bands of angry people can cause great harm, they can also cause great good. Right now, it's so easy to be sucked into the mindsets of others. I know I have. We are literally having everyone's thoughts and opinions shoved down our throats on a daily basis. And to make it worse, most of them are saying that if we don't believe them or we don't believe in the same thing as they do, then that we are the enemy and we are the source of all these bad things in the world. Don't fall for that all or nothing mentality. Each of us are complex individuals with our own backgrounds, with our own experiences that drive our values. It's by having these differences in thought that we keep each other in balance and we right the wrongs the others make. With social media... 24-7 news cycles, and maybe even the people in your everyday life all trying to get your attention. You may feel like you're in a giant playground with hundreds of kids. And it may seem like everyone else has found their group, their ideology, their identity, while you're just standing there all alone by yourself. But when you're in that moment, I want you to look around. Look around and see that there are people just like you, trying to be a part of something bigger without giving up themselves. And I think then, at that moment, is when you realize that as long as the human drive towards individuality never dies, then you will never be alone. 
Thank you all for listening. And until next time, take it easy.